Okay, right. Uh, cue, title, credit sequence, soundtrack, volume one. Oh yeah, and we all know the importance of really good beginnings. Like, you need that title music before we see our intrepid hero, duos, or, or Scooby gang. Soundtracks, whether for film or TV, can have a dramatic effect on our emotions, as well as set the tone for what we're about to see. It can be the signal to rush to the sofa, to change the channel, or, for some, get ready to tweet. The Friday Night Lights theme has a Pavlovian effect on me, and immediately makes me wish my eyes were clearer, my heart was fuller, and that I would never lose. That seems like a lot of pressure on the people who have to make the music. I'm uh, Michael Tedstone and I'm a composer with Manaki Music. Coming up this week on OK Commuter. Hey up, hello, welcome to OK Commuter. My name is Nathan Jeerman. This week we continue with the movie topic and with a sly nod and appreciative glance at the excellent soundtracking podcast... I explore the art of scoring visuals with composer Michael Tedstone. He tells me about the journey from aspiring pop band to lip-syncing Mary Berry and how turning around a track for an advert might differ from scoring the next multiplex blockbuster. During the interview in our last episode, visual effects artist Juan Louis told me how parts of his love of films came from listening to soundtracks. And I think most of us could rattle off a selection of films and do a quick rendition of the music. Some songs have become synonymous with the film they've appeared in, and directors like Quentin Tarantino, Danny Boyle and Edgar Wright have garnished their reputation with top-selling soundtrack albums choicely stocked with some prime cuts of music. Whilst there is undoubtedly a skill to picking the right song, what intrigues me the most is music that has been created and produced for specific films. Usually it's the title music that is most memorable, but often our emotional response and immersion in a film is aided and abetted by the instrumentation throughout certain scenes. I mentioned in the intro the excellent podcast Soundtracking, hosted by Edith Bowman. She chats with producers, directors, composers and actors 
about the music in some of the most memorable films of all time. If you haven't already, I totally recommend you toddling over to iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast and subscribing to Soundtracking. What prompted this episode was me listening to that podcast and thinking, how different is the world of composing away from the multi-million dollar budgets? If you can't pick up the phone to, say, Thomas Newman and book a symphony orchestra, how do you get the right sound for your film? Now, this is where we should have a sly cutaway to composer Michael Tedstone, who introduced himself earlier. But what we really need is some montage travelling music for me to head over and meet him. This is a good excuse to play one of my favourite ever pieces of title music. It seemed to perfectly set up the mood of the film. This is Roy Budd and the theme to Get Carter. The original, obviously, not the abomination with Sylvester Stallone. This is the one with Michael Caine boarding a train back to Newcastle. So end montage with me arriving at Phoenix Cinema in Leicester, walking up to the studio of brother and sister duo Manike Music and meeting Michael Tedstone. He makes the coffee and we sit down.
I know the first question you're likely to be asked, so let's get it out of the way. Have you made any music that people will have heard? Do you know, it's, it's really hard because we do sing. Um, often uh, we don't know where our music's been used. So, uh, like, we've done... Um, our music's been used for The Apprentice. It's been used... Um, it's been used all over. So the type of thing people will have heard and maybe not know they've heard it. Uh, we did one of the trailers for British Bake Off. That was a good one. Uh, it was the one that was pulled. <laughs> it was it was on for quite a few days. It was on... Um, we were really excited because it was the men's Wimbledon final. And then the advert came on with our music. And we were like, how many millions of people are watching it? We loved that. Uh, it was the one where they used the sound of music. But um, it wasn't the sound of music. It was the sound of baking. And we did the music for that. We had to recreate the Sound of Music score, but the BBC got in trouble for that because they, they didn't get permission from the Sound of Music uh, estate. It's this um, new law that came in a, a few years ago, and it, it's a parody law, and I think they were trying to use that, but actually it wasn't really a parody at all. It was just the Sound of Music. They just changed some of the words. But um, I loved that. I love I loved recreating the Sound of Music score so people wouldn't know it was uh, sampled instruments. And uh, we had to... We got in a a singer that we like to use and uh, we had to uh, Mary Berry had to lip sync to her it was a it was a laugh and then um we didn't have a, a singer for to kind of be Paul Hollywood and we're like who are we going to use for the singer because he, he's quite a big guy we can't use kind of a pop singer so we used um my sister's partner Pete and he came in and uh He's not a professional singer, but he's an actor. So he had the confidence to do it and he really pulled it off and he sounded great. But there was a lot of uh, comments afterwards like, why does Paul Hollywood have a cold? He didn't have a cold. It was just a completely different person. People didn't realise that it was lip synced. They were like, Mary Berry's got a really great voice. I wonder how many people wrote to the Radio Times asking, when's Mary Berry going to release an album? It does seem something that they've got a lot of TV uh, presenters doing at the moment. Um, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about your, your background. I uh, have, have worked with and taught a lot of young people who've had aspirations in the arts, whether it's to be um, actors or musicians. And to be honest, not many of them said their ambition was to be a soundtrack composer. Was that something that was always an ambition of yours? Did you always want to be a musician or, or maybe be in a band? Um, music was always there. Uh, I grew up in Glasgow. I've got a really mixed accent because uh, my parents are English and um we grew up going to the Glasgow Arts Centre because our dad was director of the Glasgow Arts Centre. So um, every Saturday we'd go along and we'd play all sorts of instruments from kind of 10 in the morning to 4. And at the time, I really like I did enjoy it, but I wanted to be out playing football. So music was always one of those things that I did, but it wasn't like... Um, it, was, it, was, it was part of me, but I, didn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to be this when I grew up. And then uh, I got to 17 and uh, and I went to Glasgow uh, University to do computing programming and uh, it just didn't fit with me. And I was like, what am I going to do? I've got no idea. It's only this thing that I knew I was going to do isn't working for me. And uh, I went down to London because Mary Ann was down there, my sister, and she, she'd gone to the Guildhall School of Music. So I went down there and I did music production and um, I kind of fell into it. And I've been doing it music since then. 
Um, I should say when uh, when I was sentient as well, my our mum died, and we used um, some of the the money that from our life insurance to buy a massive recording setup because we wanted to do something positive with it, and we wanted to turn a really rubbish situation into a, a positive one. And so, um, my dad and my sister bought all this kit, like, um, and we we still we still use some of it. And they were like, Michael, can you just learn how to use this, please? And uh, I remember sitting there in my living room with uh, my mate, and I was just looking at these boxes, and I was like, they don't even have instructions. I don't know what I don't know how to do this. I, I don't know what a compressor is. And um, so yeah, I, I was just uh, spent my time learning how to do it, and had this background in music because we'd been playing it since uh, a young age. And uh, that's uh, and then when I went down to London, Marianne and I started working with each other, and we've been doing it since then, really. My very brief experiences in and around recording studios have given me a, a teensy insight into the alchemy that occurs on those sound desks and with all the equipment to turn ideas into music. It doesn't look like something you can just teach yourself in a day. How did you manage to get to grips with it? Are we, are we talking trial and error? Did you find someone to help you or, or was it books from the library? Yeah, we had books. Um, because we uh, went to the Glasgow Art Centre, like I knew people that had done recording. So like I'd get around a guitarist and he'd teach me some of his tricks. And, and you know, it's, uh, you, you plug stuff in and if it doesn't make a sound, then you, you try plugging something else in and... Uh, the internet was around, so I was on forums asking people um, ridiculous questions, and they were giving me um, half helpful answers, and so that's how it worked. And I went to London, did the production diploma. Slowly, we got better, and uh, we decided we wanted to write pop music because we were living with this guy who was um, writing uh, singles for uh, Zomba Music, which is uh, part of Sony. And we were like, we could do this too. We we've grown up doing music we like pop music let's let's give it a go we wrote three songs uh sent them off to two publishers and um we got uh, an email back saying all right you've got five minutes come into um come down to london and uh, we'll give you a meeting so we walked in and this was big life we walked in and there was some guitars um sitting in the hallway and that was snow patrol's kit and we're like and he was like the the guy who was kind of head of big life was like oh that's snow patrols just uh step over it and uh we walked past and he was like do you want a cup of tea and we we're like yeah we'll have a cup of tea because Marianne had read and uh in this magazine this was our prep for the for the kind of interview it's like if you are offered a cup of tea you accept it that is actually true i have read about this because you know we're um we're british you have to finish the cup of tea you're never going to be thrown out of a meeting before you finish the cup of tea and, and i like the logic that they can't possibly kick you out if you're drinking tea so um, we had the cup of tea and we played in this track that we'd written called Breathe. And he, he listened to it and uh, he got up and he, he ran out of the room. And we're like, where's he gone? And he went and got Jazz Summers. And Jazz Summers had um, discovered um, George Michael. Uh, he managed the Verve. And um, he was like, listen to this song. And he played Jazz the song. And uh, he was like, well, what do you want to do with them? He was like, well, I want to give them a deal. And uh, so we we wrote three songs and we got given a publishing deal and we were told to spend the next three years writing songs. He was like, you're not going to get anywhere in the next three years because you're, you're too blue, but just um, we're going give to you, give you money. Don't worry about it. Just write songs. And so that's that's how we got into the industry. That seems like the conclusion to a very short British feel good movie. But we all know how stories work. 
our hero's path cannot always be smooth. And next, Michael tells me about what helped them stand out from the crowd, but also how one of their ambitions was thwarted before it really got started. As we're talking pop music amongst the soundtracks, I thought it only appropriate to pick a track that almost sort of straddles both. I've been a bit slack and have only just watched the TV series The Detectorists. Created by and starring Mackenzie Crook alongside Toby Jones, it is a gentle and dry comedy drama that is quite perfectly set up with this track by folk artist and actor Johnny Flynn. Will you search through the lonely earth for me? Climb through the briar and bramble. I'll be your treasure. I felt the touch of the kings and the breath of the wind. I knew the call of all the songbirds. They sang all the wrong words. I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for you So Michael and Marianne had just landed a plum publishing deal and everything was rosy. Although we may need a brief flashback. I think it helped as well. Like I missed out a little bit of the story in that um, we had just done a play for the Royal Shakespeare Company. We'd gone down to Stratford and we'd done the music for this um, ancient, it was Pontius Pilate. Um, and we got it because Marianne had been doing some ancient Greek and Roman music because she'd been told by a director um, or someone at BAFTA, I think it was, Scottish BAFTA, that um, there's this kind of, there was a niche for this kind of music because there's documentaries being made, there's lots of films being made. It was kind of around Gladiator time, perhaps, maybe just before that. And um, they're like, you should be doing this. And so she'd been working on this. She knew the um, the director, creative director of the Royal Shakespeare Company because um, he was, um, he's Scottish, um, but he was Scottish. No, he's still Scottish. He's not. Uh... <laughs> he's not changed nationality suddenly. Yeah, he's not changed. And uh, he was um, at the Tron Theatre in Glasgow. And uh, Mern was a teenager playing as part of the ensemble. I think she might be been acting too. And the, um, his composer walked out. Um, and he was like, what am I going to do? And Mern went up to him and was like, well, I'll finish your, your score for you. And he was like, you give it a go, that's fine. And so she finished the score uh, when she was kind of 15. 
and uh, he kind of thought she was a genius from that point on. And so we had an in because he became the director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Nice. Uh, she was doing ancient Greek and Roman music. He was doing Pontius Pilate, and it was a nice fit. So we we kind of landed that job as our first job. I went down and helped out. That that still seems like a leap from composing a specific era of music for a Shakespeare play to pitching pop songs for a publishing deal. So we sent the email off to Tim Parry and, uh, at Big Life. And uh, he told us that they got hundreds of emails a week and they maybe see one person every two weeks. And uh, they picked us out because uh, the kind of Royal Shakespeare th- company thing stuck out for them. And so it it definitely gave us an in, just because there's so many people doing it. And it's worse these days. It's such a saturated industry that you need anything to kind of put you just above the... Um, yeah, people. yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that was the quirk, the difference that made you stand out. Was it the Shakespeare work then that provided the link back into soundtrack work? They um, started getting into sync. By they, I mean Big Life. And they started doing um, not just music with their artists, but they wanted to have a sync department where they could um, provide TV shows and film with music. And they um, hired someone uh, called Toby Slade Baker. And um, we had a meeting with him and we chatted with him. And he was like, production-wise, has to be right up there. Um, there's also a hold of rules when you're doing sync music. Um, has to be one emotion all the way through. Has to be close to three minutes. Um, you have to be able to do cut downs to one minute exactly, 30 seconds exactly. And um, he was like, if you can do all that and you've not got a problem, then you'll be great for sync and when you start doing sync with us. Could you could you just explain what sync music is? So sync music is um, you get libraries of music that um, publishers have that are specifically written for television programmes and uh, they normally bundle them together in certain styles. You might get kind of 20s music, you might get... Roman and Greek music, and um, it means when a TV show is looking for this style of music, then go to a library, and that's generally called kind of sync music, production music, library music. And um, so we started doing that, and we started churning them out. It was something that we could do, I think, because of our background um, at the Glasgow Arts Centre. I absolutely loved the idea that it was this quite specific and unique, I guess, uh, ability to be able to do a certain type of music for a Shakespeare play um, that landed you a publishing deal. Um, I just kind of want to go back to that a little bit of um, you had three were given three years to sit and write, which which sounds amazing and also like a huge amount of freedom. But I was thinking of some of the people I know that say they they need the pressure uh, to be able to produce and and as always I'm thinking of a, a TV show I'm thinking of when I watched Nashville and the duo in that Gunner and Scarlet uh, were taken on for a publishing deal and had to sit and produce songs I was just wondering how how was that three years knowing you you had that amount of time how was that for you uh, professionally and and artistically I guess I think we were really relaxed about it I'm looking back on it um I wish I could go back and just um, shake myself and be like, you know, you, you, there's so much you don't know. But yeah, we were just really relaxed. I would get up and we, um, our studio was at home at that point. So like um, all through the day, from when I got up to the evening, we just write music. And um, it was it was a lot of fun. There, there was so much learning to do because we were so new to the industry. There were so many mistakes that we made. And um, uh, there was no one to tell us. Um, that we were making these mistakes, not really. The publisher would just be like, all right, that's fine, do another one. We had a little bit of a problem 
um, at Big Life because the the A and R that we worked with was a hip hop A and R, and he's a brilliant A and R, but he's hip hop, and we are not hip hop. We are we are pop, and um, so we'd send him something, and he'd just be like, I, "I don't know what to do with this. I just don't know who to send this to. I don't know." Um, and so there was that kind of clash, and. Um, we struggled to get over that. And <laughs> I just think, were you ever tempted or did you just turn to each other and say, let's just try making this a bit more hip hop? Yeah, but we did. That's exactly what we did. And we did a few hip hop tracks. And Oh, wow. Have, have you still got them? I don't even want to listen to them. Um, I've probably got them somewhere on an old hard drive somewhere. In the end, what we did was we were like, hip hop thing's not really working. So we went down more of a soul route. So we could kind of step away from the pop and incorporate some of the stuff from hip-hop and you ended up with this kind of soul sound we were getting a bit more savvy at this point we we knew because we started off we didn't realize that we needed to have a singer because Marianne could sing but there's such a big difference between having someone that can sing and someone that is a singer and we hadn't we hadn't realized that distinction and um really helped us when we started working with singers and because um Marianne's got a beautiful voice and you play a, a track with Marianne singing to some to someone and they love it but that's where it stops it doesn't go any further it's like oh that's that's a brilliant sound but we don't want it um what you, you people need that um they need a singer so they can identify oh that's that thing we can put it in that box and uh we didn't realize that that's what we had to do we had to put things into boxes so people knew what they are had to be really great production quality had to be um able to put in a box um had to be like the the single from six months ago and we hadn't really realized that we found a singer from Botswana and uh, she was really cool and uh, she she was into soul music she had a great voice we started working with her and we got six songs together and we went to Big Life and we said we want to do a showcase and uh, we want to get a band together and just show off our songs and so we we worked for a few months we rehearsed and we got like a string quartet together flute backing vocalists bass player I was on keys and uh, we went and did this um, showcase down in London and uh, a few things went wrong with the showcase we we got phoned up that week that the venue had cancelled we had to get a new venue um, and then the week of the showcase um, who was it Universal went and bought up the entire publishing industry they went round all the publisher companies, publishing companies, and just bought them out. And um, we phoned up Jazz Summers and Tim Parry, and we we're like, "Are you coming to the showcase?" And they're like, "We are coming to the showcase. We don't actually own you anymore because Universal have bought our entire catalogue, and we're just wondering what to do now." And we're like, "Right." And we're like, "What do we do?" And they're like, "Just do the showcase. Don't worry about it. But you're now signed to Universal." And we're like, "Wow." And they, um, it was to say, they did the same with Virgin. They uh, they just went round and bought everyone. And uh, so we did the showcase. It was brilliant. Uh, Tim Parry was like, this is the best showcase I've been to. And um, we were now signed to Universal. Um, Singer was pissed off because nothing happened. We still stay in touch with it. But it's just one of those things. We, we didn't own the songs anymore. And it was, it was really frustrating. It was kind of heartbreaking for all of us. From our point of view, we were now signed to Universal, so there was a silver lining, but it was frustrating for the singer because there was no silver lining for her. Coming up, Michael tells us how they moved on from a publishing deal to progress their career. 
This would be our cue for a halfway point musical moment of woe, but tinged with hope. This is a piece of music that sort of does that for me, from the Gareth Edwards directorial debut, Monsters. This is John Hopkins and a piece called Temple. Welcome back. Michael Tedstone, composer and musician, had been writing songs with his sister Marianne and had brought in a distinctive singer along with other musicians for their showcase, only to be told that Universal had bought out their publishers. The chance to take their music on as a band seemed to be fading, despite Michael and Marianne still trying to work with a new team at Universal. We'd phone up and uh, the A&R that had been assigned to us would go off on maternity leave. Uh, we couldn't get in touch with anyone else. Um, to be honest, there was... Um, also, if, they, if you're buying out Big Life and they've got um, the Verve uh, and they've got Snow Patrol, they're going to be interested in the Verve and Snow Patrol and they're not going to be so interested in us. So we had to reevaluate everything and think, what are we going to do now? And uh, we had this sync thing because we've been working with Toby and we're like, um, Toby's moved on. Um, he got in touch with us. He's like, I've heard what's happened. It's like, come work with me. And so we waited for our contract with Universal to end, which was it wasn't that long, it was like nine months. We went off and started doing film and TV stuff. So was was that the end of the pop music dream? It was. Uh, we normally have one project a year where we do pop, and um, these days we try and work with a singer, and uh, we we think about doing the same thing. We're like, are we going to take her to record labels or? Um, but the, do you know the thing is, um, in film and TV music, they're always looking for pop. So uh, 
we we continue doing the pop just because we enjoy doing it and we can sell it and some uh, we've got some great uh, placements around the world with our pop is there a difference in the approach as a musician to writing sync music and and writing for soundtracks uh there is a difference uh when you're writing a soundtrack often we'll have visuals and um scoring to visuals is a completely different game really to doing sync and library stuff you've got um there's pros and cons there's something about sitting there with a, a visual with uh, no sound on it that's really intimidating you sit there and I, um and certainly i do i'm like i've got no idea what i'm gonna do i've got no idea how to make this good enough and then do you know what within half an hour an hour um you're getting ideas together and you're like this is great because as soon as you put anything to a visual it works like as um I don't know what it is about it. Like, I really enjoy those things on uh, Vimeo where they take, like, the first 10 minutes of Star Wars and then put Pink Floyd to it. I'm like, why does that work? Why does that work so well? Why, when um, they wrote that 30, 40 years ago, why is it syncing to Star Wars? And I love that. And uh, and so you get that experience of you, you just start kind of writing stuff and it, it does work with the visuals. And um, as human beings, we kind of tie the music and it and it works. Yeah, I'm thinking I remember the excitement when the Lord of the Rings trailer for The Two Towers came out and, and it was all familiar enough to begin with, a hint of Elvish song, all lyrical, this signature swell that would be in The Fellowship. And then a, a theme from a very, very different movie comes in. And I don't know if you remember, but they actually had Clint Mansell's soundtrack from Requiem for a Dream. I guess they used it as the score for Two Towers hadn't been completed yet. Or, I don't know, maybe they used it as a temporary stand-in to set the mood. And I was wondering if you often get given footage with a pre-existing piece of music over that, that acts as a guide. And if you do, is that useful or do you find it off-putting? I find it helpful. It's something that is becoming much more prevalent. Um, I, I first noticed it in the Transformers film. Because you watch Transformers and you can play this game where you guess what the reference track was and you can totally play it. Um, it's really obvious and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, it's just a really good way of directors to communicate what they want with a composer really quickly because as composers you're given no time to do music. We do a lot of music for advertising and um, we are given... We might be like phoned up on Tuesday afternoon and say that the um, deadline is Wednesday lunch. And that is for that might be for like a, a minute-long advert. And we have to score it in that time. We might have to get instrumentalists in. Uh, you're given no time whatsoever. That, that sounds like a really quick turnaround. As, as a comparison, how long would you ideally like to create, say, a, a minute's worth of music? Uh, do you know, that's a funny thing, actually, because I, think, um, I don't think it would take us that much longer. I think when we were... When we're doing library stuff, we try and churn out the library stuff really quickly. So um, I think overall we're looking at three days for three minutes. So um, from that comparison, it's pretty equal. But actually, there's, um, when you're doing an advert, because you're applying the music to the visuals, you do feel under pressure. to. Um, you're looking at kind of minutiae a lot more. You're spending a lot of time on like this little five-second chunk. And I think for an advert, I just want a little bit longer. Like I'd like a week to work on a, a minute-long advert. Right, right. Is is that because an advert has so many beats condensed into a short time frame? I think sometimes you're you're looking through an advert, and um, and I miss things as well, and uh, I especially miss miss things when I'm in a rush. 
So if I know I've got a deadline, I'll be like, um, I'll watch the advert, I'll watch the advert. And then it's only kind of the fourth, fifth time I start picking out things because I've calmed down. I'm like, I know what I'm doing now. And I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing with that scene. That's what they're doing here. And um, I think if we had a little bit more time, uh, we'd get a better results sometimes. On a, on a technical or even artistic side, is there a difference as a musician between composing a song and composing for film? Uh, there is a lot of differences. One of the main differences is when you're writing a song, um, to keep the structure um, so people know where they are in the song, you tend to work in four-bar chunks. Certainly we do in kind of uh, the UK and America. Elsewhere, they're a bit more versatile in a way. But we have, our, you know, our verse might be eight bars, 16 bars, and then we'll have our four-bar, eight-bar chorus. And it's really... Um, You've got these methods that you use and you cannot apply them to sync music because uh, you have to use half bars, quarter bars, you have to increase the tempo because you're you're trying to match these sync points. And so you have to be a lot more open to having uh, rhythms that you wouldn't get in pop music because pop music is mostly kind of four beats a bar, four to the floor, kick drum. You can apply these kind of methods that you can apply in uh, sync music and when you're writing to visuals. You mentioned briefly before about um, moving towards more live instruments in your recordings. Is is that an artistic preference or is there a practical issue where sometimes picking an instrument up to record is, is easier than trying to digitally manufacture it? We try and have one live instrument in everything. Um, it ties everything together. If, if it's all digital, you can, you can pretty much tell straight away um, and instruments year on year are getting better. Digital instruments are. Um, you can't really tell these days if it's live strings or uh, sampled strings, depending on what they're playing. There's, you know, some pieces of music we still can't really do with sampled strings. Um, but in general, um, you need that one live instrument there to tie everything together. If you've got a lead guitar that's um, kind of been finger picked and it's real, then that ties all the sampled instruments together. And so we try and do that because it kind of breathes life into it. It's really easy to sit there in front of a computer, play in a guitar, and then kind of um, uh, quantize it so it's exactly in time. And you, you get into this uh, method where you're doing this with everything, and then uh, you listen back to it. It's, it's, it's not quite right. It's too perfect. And then you get an alive instrument, you put it over the top, and you're like, that works. Are you at a point in your career where you only look at specific type of projects now or, or do you just see everything as a challenge? We take everything on and it's something that um, I think we're going to have to do less of in the future. It's really hard when you own your own company and you, you just want to do everything or certainly we do. And we we do talk to other composers and they, they say, oh, do you know what, I want to start dropping this this thing and working on this thing. And I think it's something we're going to have to do as we kind of continue to grow because we want to, get, to keep growing and getting better. And um, I think one of our faults is that we try and do everything and we try and apply um, ourselves to all these music genres. And the problem is you're up against people that specialise in those genres and it's it can be really frustrating sometimes because... Um, you're kind of new to this genre and you're competing with this guy that's been doing it for forever. And so I think uh, we might have to start in the future just picking out things that we know that we're good at, that we enjoy doing. Do you sit and, and make goals and, and think about what types of projects you'd really like to take on? I think we want to do bigger projects. We want to uh, be doing more um, films with bigger budgets. 
because uh, generally what we do is we do sync stuff and we do sync stuff for, for adverts we don't do the big films and um we'd be really stressed if we had to do a big film but we'd love it at the same time and i think we'd be really good at doing it as well how would you be able to do that is it a case of um being like the equivalent of a of a cold call or sending an unsolicited script is it the same for soundtracking and you just contact a producer and, and tout your work I try to write down where all our clients come from. I try to have this uh, kind of spreadsheet in these kind of uh, Venn diagrams of what was going on. And um, it's really hard to track. Um, every every new client is different and it really is. Um, some of them we've known for years. Some of them just email us out the blue. Some of them we stumble across them in some sort of social media platform. It's a real hodgepodge of um, how we find that person. And there's no kind of, we can't apply the you know the same brush to all of them um i think uh if we were to really go for the film thing i think um, i'd have two plans of attack i think i'd be like we've worked with a hold of uh directors we know that they um they're working at kind of media companies but we know at some point they're going to want to do a film and um i think we'd hang them and say well we, we want to do that film i think um that would be our first um port of call and i think that's perhaps the most likely way we're going to do a film. Uh, the other way is um, going through an agent. And we do have an agent, and it, it's tricky for them because it's it's that kind of chicken-egg thing. You need a film to get another film. And uh, we're aware of that, and um, I think we're going to have to chance our luck and just stumble into a film because someone's left. And uh, so we're, we're waiting for that to happen, and I think that probably will happen at some point, and it's almost happened before. Um so I think those are the two routes. We'll, we'll go through an agent, and but also we're kind of cultivating these relationships with directors that we've worked with. There's a real breadth to the type of music you've created. Um, in terms of the next step to score a film, is there a specific style you'd really like to do or perhaps a certain movie you've seen and thought, yeah, you know what, that would be ideal for us to score? Do you know what, I don't. Uh, it's a really bad thing. I, I wanted to give you a really good answer. Like, like the, when I think of the films I love, like I love uh, Clint Mansell. I like a, he's such a brilliant composer, and I love Requiem for a Dream. Although I can't watch it too many times because it's so depressing. It's, it's not a film you can watch every day. I don't think it's uh, it's like the yeah. I, I, I can't I can't watch it like once a year perhaps. Uh, and I, I like I love the the music in the fountain. I just love listening to it. Like um, I think out of scores that those are the scores I've listened to most. But um, I also love Thomas Newman. Like, uh, if I had to think of a composer that we we try to emulate the most, it'd, it'd be Thomas Newman over uh, Clint Mansell. And uh, there are kind of two ends of the spectrum, so it was really hard for me to say, "Oh, I'd love to do this film" because I love Thomas Newman and I love Clint Mansell, and uh, and also I love um, I love the Star Wars scores. Um, do you know, it's really hard to pick. Um, I, we'd give anything a go, and we'd um, we'd love it. This seems like the perfect time. Uh, to pick up on one of those composers Michael mentioned. The Fountain was a film by Darren Aronofsky that had a spectacular amount of coverage about the pre-production woes as first the casting choices of Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett left the film and the budget was then drastically cut. In stepped Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz to a generation and universe hopping metaphysical film that either had people turning off or eulogising about it. Regardless of whether you've seen the film or not, and whether you were in the thumbs up or thumbs down camp, hopefully you'll enjoy this piece of music from the film that was scored by Clint Mansell. This is First Snow.
if you haven't seen The Fountain before and now you fancy watching it, I'd love to know what you think of it. You can always get in touch on Twitter and Facebook via OKCommuterPod or the website okcommuter.co.uk, where you can also find all of our previous episodes. OK, back to my chat with composer Michael Tedstone from Manicky Music. In terms of scaling up and maybe working on a larger film project, what artistically or practically would be the difference if you suddenly landed a larger budget to work with? I think it's the um, musicians you work with and the corners you have to cut in terms of the recording facilities. Um, we've started working with Audio Network and they give us a budget for all our albums now. And so um, we talk to them, we, we say, we want to go to this recording studio. We want to, and we're talking with them this year. Um, we're writing a new album at the moment of kind of mi- Middle Eastern music mixed with um, pop. And we've done one of these before, but we want to do another one. We want to make it better. And um, we're talking with them about going to Abbey Road and using this uh, Syrian ensemble. And um, that is the, that's the difference. It's using those mu- musicians that know what um, they want to achieve with their instrument as opposed to using the, the samples. And the thing is, if you, um, it's about comparison, I could sit here and I could play you uh, an oud, which is like a Middle Eastern lute on the keyboards. It's not a character from Star Wars. It's not, it's not a character from Star Wars. It sounds like one. Sorry, isn't it? The oud, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but we could, um, we could play that. And um, if I played that to you kind of... Um, just an iTunes or something, you might not be able to pick that out, that that was a fake instrument. But if I played that next to a real instrument, suddenly it's night and day, and it's that comparison that's the difference. It's um, in, With music, um, it's, the, it, it's always that comparison that makes a difference between good production and bad production. You can listen to a track that isn't that well-produced and really enjoy it, but then you listen to something that's well-produced and you go, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Okay, is that a technical issue? in that the sound design for something like a film for a theatrical release would need to factor in that it's going to be played out of huge, precise speakers. Is is that something you need to consider when you're actually composing? Yeah, it is. Um, we, we kind of learn this the hard way in that um, when something's done for TV, you have to really uh, pay attention to technical details, like um, when you start recording instruments with multiple multiple mics because you get want to get a better sound you suddenly encounter phase issues and if you've got a phase issue with a track then that will not be used for tv because tvs are essentially mono it doesn't matter if they have two speakers you're sitting you're sitting the other end of the room so that's a, a mono source and if you've got phase issues then that music's not going to sound right and so you, you you suddenly have to start paying attention to these technical issues and they're all the more in a in a cinema because uh, you don't know where people are going to be sitting you have to um you don't know whether they're sitting on the left-hand side of the stage, the right-hand side. And so you, um, the music has to work no matter where someone's sitting. And um, it's something you have to pay attention to, definitely. Often the pathway I hear people talk about towards making a feature film is making short films. Is that a similar pathway for you as composers? Do you score for short films? Um, if so, how often is it with a really low or even no budget? We've done loads of short films. Yeah. We do them less now. We do um, one a year now. Short films generally don't have budget. There's a, um, there's no way to consume short films um, and make money from not really. And there's kind of uh, um, sometimes they'll have an investor. Uh, we've had it where they want to kind of take them around schools afterwards. There's always um, something that maybe invests a bit of money, and in, in that case, will make sure that we get paid. But often, if we're going to do a short film, we accept that there's not going to be money there. 
And actually, it's that thing where we want to cultivate a relationship with that director. It doesn't really... Um, short films aren't useful for us in terms of the public. It doesn't matter that um, how many hundreds or thousands of people are going to see that short film. The public don't really help us. It's the, the film crew that we want to get our music to. We want it, the film crew to hear our music so they can go to other jobs because they'll probably be working at corporate visual companies or media companies and then they'll come back to us and say, there was this really great composer working here. Why don't we use their music? And actually that's how um, we started doing... Um, um, beyond, we, we were working with Toby at Big Life, but also we started doing short films and getting uh, jobs through these short films for um, advertising companies. That's really interesting to hear, as, as quite often you'll hear people focus on taking on something that has uh, exposure in terms of how large the audience will be, how many clicks and views, whereas you're more focused on who that audience is. Does that then influence and impact on what projects you want to take on? We pick projects because of the director, essentially. If we um, know a director and we believe in him, then we'll work in that project. Um, we uh, Some of our really early films were with a director called Brady Hood, and he was brilliant. And um, he, had a, um, he was working with Joe Wright as uh, an assistant, and so Joe Wright came in all those short films and was the executive director for those short films that we did. And that was a great end as well. And it was really validating having him kind of oversee those films as well. It was brilliant. And what has been the general process for you? Do you get to see a script quite early or are you hurriedly given a finished film with the urgent request for a soundtrack? Normally we get the script first. We, we normally get brought in quite early because um, chances are we'll know the director already. And they'll say, this is the script. Um, can you get us some ideas? And that makes us feel comfortable as well. If we can write some music and send it to the director and they go, yeah, that's what we were hearing too, then we so we can relax and we can go, oh, we know what we're doing. That's fine. If, um, if we don't have an idea about what we're getting into, it's the same thing as when you've got that uh, uh, visual in front of you from an advert and it's a blank canvas. It, we get a bit nervous at that point. So we like something to start with. It's quite often I, I speak to people who achieve any degree of success and there's usually someone who pipes up with how they've had this overnight success. For you and Marianne, this has been a path that has taken years and seems like it's been clearly mapped out. Have you had a clear plan for your career? It's the differences in our personality. Um, it's the benefit of having two siblings, I think. I'm a real take-the-long-road guy. Like I will get my head down and I will keep pushing because um, I know if we had that back catalogue, if we had those jobs that we've done, those great jobs, then uh, opportunities will arise for us in the future because we can say, look, we've done this, this and this. Marianne is always uh, looking at the big picture. She was always looking ahead a few steps and she's coming up with the big ideas. So um, I'll give you an example. The, the example is this album we're working at the moment. I knew I wanted to do another Arabic album because we'd done one and it had done really well, this kind of Arabic pop fusion. And... Uh, she was kind of overseeing this and thinking, well, we've already done one. How are we going to make this better? We need to go to Abbey Road. Audio Network works at Abbey Road. So she phoned up Audio Network and said, we want to do this one at Abbey Road. And they were like, all right, that's fine. As long as it's good enough, we'll do it. And so that's the kind of, she's the one that's looking um, at these kind of, uh, these leaps. And I'm the ones, I'm the one that's kind of taking the step forwards. I know you mentioned right at the start when I asked you if there's any music uh, people might have heard uh, of yours. I'm just thinking, are there any 
bits of music you've done that are the standouts for you, either that you just really like the sound of them or you think that it's perfectly fit the brief you were given? I really enjoyed the end of uh, last year taking one of the tracks from the Arabic album that we just done, the Arabic pop album, and applying it to um, for this Dubai company. Uh, there's a festival in Dubai um, called the Light and Sound Festival. I don't think it's the Light and Sound Festival. It's Light and Sound something. But the, um, this Wafi Mall, it's called. And it's, uh, they do it every year. And they have this massive big light show and they project images onto this mall. And they, they need music. And uh, we kind of uh, changed the music for this project. And it was uh, I loved it. I loved changing the music uh, because it was kind of sync all over again. We took this track and we adapted it for a completely different medium that we'd never done before. And uh, and then they sent us a, a video. We didn't go over to Dubai to watch it, but they sent us a video of it afterwards. And it looked amazing. And it was just something we'd never done before. And I'd love to do more of that kind of projection mapping onto building stuff because uh, it looks great. And uh, like the speakers they were playing our music through was massive. And I loved that. To let you know we have the video of what michael was talking about there on the episode page of our website and we'll share it on social media too visiting michael and marianne studio for this interview it was unavoidable to see and really absorb michael's passion for music and for composing i'm always impressed with people's dedication to their craft and hearing about a career developing over years of graft is just so satisfying and i wanted to end on one of the more simple rewards for this At the beginning, I'd asked Michael what pieces of music we might have heard, and I wanted to include the joy he gets from unexpectedly hearing his music. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes we'll be sitting there and we're like, that's a nice piece of music. Who who did that? Oh, it's us. (laughs) Because, you know, um, it's taken me a long time to to like my music, and I don't like all our music, but um, some of it I do. And it's really nice hearing a piece of music and being like, that's nice. I wonder who did that? And then realizing it's us. It's just a nice reward because I've had so many years of being frustrated because I'm not getting the sign that I want. And then hearing it and kind of sit you and going, oh, that that worked well. I'm, I'm pleased with myself. A huge thank you to Michael Tedstone of Manaki Music for talking to me. You can hear more of the music he and his sister Marianne create at their website, manakemusic.com. That's M-A-N-I-K-E music.com. You can get in touch with me, Nathan Human, at okcommuter.co.uk and Twitter and Facebook, okcommuterpod. If you want to be super nice, then tell someone else about the podcast and you can leave us a review at iTunes when you search for OK Commuter. Thanks for listening and to play us out today, it's possibly my favourite ever piece of music from a film. John Barry is probably best known for his Bond films work, but my favourite is this from the Michael Caine film, The Ipcris File.